If you enjoy studying the Bible, but have grown frustrated looking for solid content you can trust, welcome to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study each day, five days a week. Every Monday, the team at Get Fed Today posts five hand-selected sermons from a vast catalog of reliable Bible teachers for you to enjoy on your commute, to and from work, during your daily walk or run, or that hour you spend working out. Please note, Get Fed Today only posts content that is already available for free on the internet. Nothing about this ministry is monetized, and a few costs associated with hosting the podcast have been covered by a single benefactor. In fact, Get Fed Today is a volunteer ministry run by a team of Christ followers who love God's Word, enjoy good Bible teaching, and genuinely want to make it as easy as possible for their fellow brothers and sisters to get fed today. All you have to do is subscribe. For quick links to the podcast available on Apple, Google, and Spotify, simply visit GetFedToday.com. And again, that's GetFedToday.com. In Job chapter 31 and in verse 35, Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. At a kid's summer camp, a counselor was leading a discussion on creation. He explained why God had created the clouds and the trees and the rocks and the rivers and the animals, that God had a good reason for all he had created. That's when one little boy asked the question, if God has a good purpose for everything, then why did he create poison ivy? Well, his question was followed by dead silence. The counselor didn't know how to answer him. That's when another child came to the rescue. He explained to the class, the reason God created poison ivy is because he wants us to know there's a few things we just need to keep our cotton-picking hands off of. (laughs) A good explanation indeed. I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to discover that every story begun in this life does finish with a happy ending. There is a good reason for everything God does. The problem, though, is that we don't always see his purpose. There are issues in life, like poison ivy, that cause great grief, and for no apparent reason. Some situations appear to have no sane, logical explanation, and we wonder why. How do you respond when bad things happen and God gives no reason why? As Christians, we believe that God is sovereign, that he does whatever he likes, whenever he likes, however he likes, to whomever he likes. God rules the universe, both good and evil. God is the boss. In fact, you can read the first chapter of the book of Job, and you'll notice that Satan can't harm a single hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Nothing happens in our lives, or in the universe for that matter, that isn't at the very least permitted by God. Of course, God's sovereignty is a wonderful doctrine when circumstances are pleasant, when things are going well. Oh, we're delighted that God has chosen to bless us. But what's your attitude when life takes a turn for the worse and for no apparent reason? In my early years as a Christian, I had a good friend. He was a captivating Bible teacher. Dan was a husband. He was a father to five kids. He and his ministry were influencing thousands of folks for Jesus, including me. 
I'll never forget the day I heard that the prop plane he was flying had slammed into the side of a mountain. The news broke my heart, and I can recall crying out, God, why? Look at all he's doing for you, Lord. Why this? This is how I respond today when I hear of a tornado that touches down and wipes out a trailer park, or a family on vacation killed by a drunk driver, or a virtuous woman raped, or a school shooter who targets innocent kids, or a hardworking husband who gets laid off and can no longer feed his family, or a child born with a severe handicap, or a follower of Jesus diagnosed with a cancer. What happens to your faith when you encounter a terrible situation? How do you respond when bad stuff happens to good people? Hey, even God's people, and you see nothing good result. Have you ever asked why? Have you ever screamed why? How do you deal with the poison ivy in your life? Understand, Job dealt with plenty of poison ivy. In the first two chapters of the book, we learn how that overnight Job lost everything. His fortune, his family, his fitness, even his friends. And usually a man in such distress can lean on the comfort of a devoted wife. You remember what Mrs. Job told him? Why don't you just curse God and die? Not exactly what you want to hear from the missus after you've had a bad day. I'm sure you've heard of the stress factor index. It's a set of numerical values that try to quantify the amount of stress produced by certain events in life. For example, the death of a spouse equals a 100. The death of a close family member is a 63. Fired from a job is a 47. A pregnancy is a 40. That's for the wife. It's 140 for the husband. (laughs) And on it goes. The experts say that 79% of those whose stress factor index hits 300 plus suffer a major illness as a consequence. When I figured up Job's stress factor index, it added up to 650, twice the danger level. Hey, if you think you got problems, just check out our man Job. And here's the kicker. Job did nothing to deserve what had happened to him. Job gets vindicated from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says that all that happened to Job came upon him, and I quote, without a cause. Yes, Job was human, and like all humans, he was a sinner. But he had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. In fact, if you doubt Job's devotion to God, look at his initial reaction to his loss. In chapter 1, verse 21, there he utters these words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To me, that is one of the strongest statements of faith in all the Scripture. Job chapter 1, verse 22, sums up Job's part. In all his afflictions, in all this, Job did not sin. In Job chapters 1 and 2, we are told why all this devastation occurred in Job's life. You see, Job got caught in the middle of a cosmic showdown between God and Satan. One day the devil appeared before God in the heavenly host, and like a proud papa, 
God pointed to the piety of his servant Job. Satan just scoffed. Well, God, you've blessed Job so abundantly. Why wouldn't he serve you? You've spoiled him. Just let a little hardship in his life and he'll turn on you in a heartbeat. You know, ironically, rather than being punished for some evil deed, Job's agony was caused by just the opposite. God was so proud of Job's devotion, he staked his own honor on Job's reactions. Without knowing it, Job was serving as the appointed protector of God's glory. You know, whenever I read the book of Job, I'm struck by an often overlooked fact, and that's this. Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. He never did. We are told why he suffered, but not Job. In fact, until the day he died, Job never got an explanation for his calamity. God never told Job why. But that sure didn't stop his friends from trying to answer the question. And for the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 31, three pals, if you want to call them that, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar take turns offering their explanation for the cause of Job's sufferings. Now, I figure they were golfing buddies. They were a foursome. It met every Saturday morning. And when Job didn't show up one morning, they came to check on their friend. When they arrive, they find Job. He's sitting in the middle of the ash heap, scratching his oozing sores with a broken piece of pottery. And for seven days, they just sit there in silence, mourning for their friend. As it turns out, just sitting there with Job, just being there for Job, was really the only benefit they offered. For when they opened their mouths, they tortured Job with erroneous counsel. In chapter 16, verse 2, he tells us how much help they were. He says, miserable comforters are you all. You see, Job's golfing buddies were like many folks today. They were trapped in a restrictive, defective theology. I like to call it a kindergarten theology. It's the simplistic view. It's the belief that in this life, sin is always punished and good is always rewarded. Thus, when bad things happen, it means that the victim must have committed some sin. As kids, our experiences with mommy and daddy seem to confirm this belief. Parents are good at seeing to it that our good deeds are prized and that our disobedience is punished. Oh, but then we move out into the real world. We discover that's not always how life pans out. Bad things do happen to good people. Bad people often get away with their crimes. Circumstances are not always just. Hey, life isn't always fair. Being a bit of a golfer myself, I've noticed how that golfing buddies particularly like to hold to this simplistic kindergarten theology. Whenever a golfer hits an errant shot off into the woods and it caroms off a tree trunk, bounces back into the middle of the fairway, he'll often laugh and he'll turn to his partner and he'll say, well, looks like I'm living right. As if holy living entitles you to favorable breaks while unholy living leaves you in the rough. I wish life were always that straightforward, but it's not. And this is what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar refuse to admit. They become adamant. For 29 chapters, they scrutinize Job to uncover the slightest chink in his armor on which they can blame his demise. 
At points in the dialogue, they even make up accusations. Job's friends try every tactic imaginable to pin a sin on Job. And tragically, there are Christians today who hold to this same faulty theology. Listen to most TV preachers and you'll hear them teach a kindergarten theology. Oh, do the right thing and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. You'll be driving that Lexus in no time. I have a friend of mine. She suffers from chronic asthma. She's a godly lady. She is a woman of prayer. And yet her Christian friends insisting that her suffering had to be a result of some sin in her life. Her friends, like Job's friends, went to great efforts to pin a sin on her. Reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon strip. Snoopy's standing there next to his doghouse. It's been burned to the ground by fire. He's sobbing. I've lost my pool, my Van Gogh, all my keepsakes. That's when Lucy approaches him. And you know Lucy. She snaps at him. She says, I can tell you why your house burned down. You sinned. And Snoopy responds with one of the best theological answers ever uttered. In fact, he sounds a lot like Job. He says, See, here's the problem with this kind of defective theology. It backs you into a corner. So that when bad stuff happens, you only have two options. Either God failed or I sinned. And that's why Job's friends insist that the problem is Job. For if it isn't, in their minds, it means that God has failed. And they're not about to entertain that possibility. In reality, though, neither assertion was true. The real cause of his sufferings was hidden in the heavens. You see, Job knows there is a reason. There has got to be another explanation. He just doesn't see it. And learning why becomes the burning issue in Job's life. Once there were two Americans, they traveled down to Mexico to open up a bungee jumping operation. Well, as they erected the tower there in the center of the town, there was a curious crowd of locals that all gathered around to watch. Finally, it came time for a test jump. One of the guys, he dove off the platform. But when he bounced back up, he noticed, his partner noticed that he was a little scraped up. He gasped. He said, oh no, the cord must be too long. He tried to grab his friend, but he missed him. Well, the second time the guy bounced back up to the platform, he was in worse shape. He had some bruises, some broken ribs. Again, his buddy tried to grab him, but he missed him. Well, the third time the poor fellow rose to the platform, he was so badly beaten, he was nearly unconscious. This time his sidekick lunged and grabbed him and pulled him to the platform. And he asked him, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. Was the cord too long? And that's when his partner replied, no, the cord was just fine, but... What's a piñata? <laughs> if you don't get it, ask somebody afterwards. <laughs> but sometimes life gets rough. It'll beat you up. And you don't know why. Or worse, it treats your partner, your spouse, or a co-worker, or even your child like a piñata. And you get no explanation. He loves you, Lord. Why did this happen to him? Lord, she's such a good person. Why her? We've all asked these questions, haven't we? 
You see, Job, too, was a good and godly person. But virtue didn't insulate him from pain. And remember, it wasn't Job's sin that made him a target for hardships. It was his goodness. Don't be deceived. Just because a person is hurting doesn't mean they're sinning. And just because they're thriving doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased. It does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, calamity can strike even the godliest among us. Difficulties can hit without explanation. Hey, faith doesn't always get a reason. So don't let life back you into a corner. When things go wrong, we think we only have two conclusions. Either God failed or I'm a failure. And since none of us are going to blame God, it's got to be me. And so we beat ourselves up. But remember the story of Job. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean that God has failed, nor does it mean that you're a failure. There could be a reason hidden from view. Only heaven knows the whole story, and God is expecting you and I to trust in him. And this is why our responses on earth really do matter. For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's honor in heaven, his glory, may be riding on our reaction to the twist and turns life throws our way. See, to me, the message of Job is the most practical in all the Bible. It ups the ante on everything that happens in my life. Every eye in heaven may be fixed on you to see how you handle that illness that comes upon you or that lie that's told about you. Will you fold or will you be faithful? See, this book teaches a vital lesson, and that's this, that the stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. Listen, Satan has accused the Almighty of stacking the deck, of buying our devotion with his blessing. He assumes that God is nothing more to us than a meal ticket, and he has thrown down the gauntlet. He has challenged God, nicks their blessing, and they'll stop their devotion. Do you realize That God may have chosen you to prove otherwise? God's character may be on the line in heaven, and your response to difficulty is what wins the day. I'm just saying, the stakes are a lot higher than we realize. The one certainty is that our reactions really do matter. Well, I have no doubt that Job would have gladly suffered for God if he'd just been told the effect that his faithfulness was having in heaven. The problem, though, is that Job never got a hint. Understand, Job's greatest grief was not caused by his material losses or even the boils on his body. Job's most excruciating pain was not knowing why. I found the best pain reliever by far is not Advil, not Tylenol 3, not even Demerol. It's an explanation. If there's a good reason behind my suffering, then I can rise to the occasion. But how do you respond when God refuses to give you a reason? It's like going to the doctor to get a shot. I don't like shots. But if I'm told the reason for the shot, I can accept it, endure it, maybe even be thankful for it. But what if I'm given a series of shots without being told their reason? Trust me, I won't be as tolerant. 
In fact, I'll get downright ugly and upset. I'll start pounding my hand down on the counter and I'll demand to know why. And that is exactly what Job begins to do in this book. Over the course of his dialogue with his three friends, Job demands more and more and more to know why. It reaches a crescendo in chapter 7, verse 11. Job even grows bitter. He moans these words. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. It's interesting. The word complain occurs more times in Job than in any other book of the Bible. Did you know that nearly half of the complaints uttered in Scripture fall from the lips of this one man, Job? We speak of the patience of Job, but the person in this story with the real patience was God. For God was the one who had to put up with Job's spewing bitterness. Here's what happens. You see, Job loses perspective. And it's easy for a sufferer to do. He forgets who God is. His holiness, his righteousness. Job grows bold and brash as he questions God in Job's mind, in his own estimation. Job becomes bigger and bigger and God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been said, in asking why, Job loses his way. And by the time we get to our text, the verse we read earlier, chapter 31, verse 35, Job believes that God owes him an answer. In fact, he demands it in writing. He says, oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book, Hey, God, I need a reason, and I want it in print. Arrogance has replaced Job's innocence. Job has become so sure of himself that he started to doubt God. And at one point in the dialogue, Job, in in essence, says to his friends, If my only two options are I've sinned or God has failed, then God has failed. Because I certainly haven't sinned. Job. Who do you think you are? See, Job comes perilously close to blasphemy. In his commentary on Job, author Don Baker makes this point about pain. He says, pain speaks a strange language. plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things and say things, even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing or he just doesn't care. You see, pain was having this kind of an effect on Job. And toward the end of Job's discourses, he starts challenging God to speak. He charges God with giving him a raw deal. He accuses God of being unfair. In his attempts to vindicate himself, Job accuses God. Job is more into proving his own innocence than he is in upholding God's justice. In short, Job cops an attitude. Always remember there is more, there are chapters in your story that God is yet to write. The Zophars can only speak so far. God had a glorious outcome for Job. In the end, he got double the blessings he had before. But until the day he died, Job never learned the why behind his trials. 
You see, some situations have reasons that will only make sense in heaven. Today we live a temporal, earthbound existence. And that's why it is wrong for us, from our limited perspective, to question or to criticize an eternal God. We're told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Never forget one of the first rules of theology. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God doesn't offer you an explanation, learn to live without one. Don't push it. Ultimatums don't work on God. You need to trust in His wisdom. See, here's the big question for you and me this morning. Can we trust God even when we can't trace Him? It's easy to praise God when we see His hand at work, when His blessings, even His lessons are tangible. But is our faith alive enough to survive in the dark? Did you hear about the four passengers? They were on a train. They were going from Philadelphia down to Dallas. All four riders were seated in the same compartment. There was an Eagles fan. There was a Cowboys fan. Why are you laughing? (laughs) There was this gorgeous young woman, and there was this elderly lady. Well, everyone was being very cordial to each other until this train passed through this long, dark tunnel. Suddenly, there was a loud (laughs) kiss, followed by an equally loud (laughs) slap. When the train exited the tunnel, each passenger just sort of sat there looking at each other, trying to figure out what the noises had meant. The beautiful woman, she thought, isn't that odd? A Dallas fan tries to kiss an elderly woman and not me. The elderly lady, she thought, my, that young girl, she's a fine young woman. She has some good morals. The Dallas fan thought, that Philadelphia guy, he's a smart guy. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. While the Eagles fan sat there gloating, thinking, perfect, I kiss the back of my hand, slap a Cowboys fan, and nobody ever knows. (laughs) Sometimes things happen in the dark. And God chooses not to reveal his specific reasons. And if we're not careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions, can't we? We can. Reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mom asked him to fetch the broom off the back porch. He balked. He said, but mommy, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with you. He's with you wherever you go, even when you're in the dark. The little guy sort of walked over to the back door. He cracked it open a fraction, and and he called out. He said, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? Realize, God wants us all to learn that Jesus is with us, even in the dark places. Well, how do you react when circumstances occur you don't deserve? Have you become bitter? Have you grown angry? Have you been pounding and demanding an explanation? Is your name Job? Well, let me show you how God finally responds to Job. In chapter 38, God appears to Job, but not to answer his questions. No, no. 
God takes a most unusual tact. He comes to Job asking questions, not answering them. And for five chapters, God asks Job a series of questions he can't possibly answer. A total of 70 unanswerable questions. The Almighty is about to show his servant Job that he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. You see, it's time for God to put Job back in his place. God appears to Job out of the whirlwind, and he says in verse 2, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's a fancy way of saying, Who's this guy who's been running his mouth that doesn't know what he's talking about? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. It's time for Job to eat some humble pie. God is about to remind Job that you spell the word God, G-O-D, not J-O-B. In verse 4, God begins his quiz. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job has been instructing God on how to run, run the universe. And here God makes it clear he doesn't really need Job's help. He was doing fine long before Job came along. God asked Job, Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Oh, surely you know. God even becomes sarcastic. He's saying, okay, Job, was it you holding the tape measure when we measured out the universe? I don't think so. Throughout this book, Job's incessant questioning of God's wisdom implied that he could do a better job of running things than God. But could he? Can you? On and on, these questions continue. God keeps firing queries at Job. He has no way to answer. You see, it's interesting. As Job had questioned God, in Job's estimation, he had grown larger while God had gotten smaller. But now when the roles are reversed and God is the one questioning Job, suddenly in Job's thinking, it's God who is becoming larger and larger again. And it's Job who's becoming smaller and smaller And smaller. Job is getting whittled down to size. Up against God's infinite wisdom, a finite Job knows very little. What right does he have to question or criticize the Almighty? Who does Job think he is? Be like me trying to give golf lessons to Phil Mickelson. Hey, Phil, come on over here and let old Sandy help you with your swing. Who's kidding who? Yet Job is being just as arrogant. He's trying to coach God on how to run the universe. Who does Job think he is? Job has gotten way out of line. Here's a great quote for you. If there's anything a sufferer needs, it's not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. We think we need an answer that will never be satisfied until we know why. What we really need is a vision of God. For when God comes, when he invades the picture, the reason for the trial no longer matters. All that really matters is God. See, Job thinks he's learned his lesson. Listen to his reply to God in chapter 40, verse 4. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. At first, it may seem as if Job has gotten the message, but I don't think so. See, Job has simply gone from pounding his fist 
to now pouting and sticking out his lip. In essence, he's saying, okay, God, you win. You've made your point. From now on, I'll just shut up and serve you. Job agrees to serve the Lord, but you can bet he's now going to serve God with a grudge. And I got to ask you, do you know anybody who's been serving God with a grudge? See, Job has accepted God's sovereignty for he has no other choice, but he doesn't really like it. Realize, God doesn't want us to pound or to pout. There's a third option. We can praise God for who he is despite our situation. God wants us to embrace his sovereignty with a loving, trusting wholeheartedness. We can say lovingly, Lord, thy will be done. Or we can say begrudgingly, all right then, God, have it your way. And here Job is doing the latter. He's giving in only because he has no other choice. And God is not through correcting his attitude. For again, God comes to Job in the whirlwind. And in chapter 40, verse 7, he says again, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God didn't like the first answers he got from Job, so he has some more questions. And in chapter 40, God points to two enormous, powerful animals. The behemoth and the Leviathan. And he asked Job if he can even contain these animals, let alone create them. You see, God is relentless in his humbling of Job. For he is after in Job what he wants in us, not reluctance, but repentance. God wants Job and us to rejoice in his sovereignty, to worship him, come what may. God wants us to acknowledge that he not only runs the universe, but he runs our lives, and he's better at it than we are. That God does all things well all of the time. You know, today, church architects, they build sanctuaries that optimize the sight lines so that no matter where you are in the room, you see all that's going on up front. There's not a bad seat in the house. But the Reformation architects of the great cathedrals in Europe, they had the opposite idea. They deliberately created worship venues where your view was blocked by a rail or a column or maybe a peculiar angle where you couldn't see everything that was going on up front. It was a reminder to the worshipers that there are some things hidden from us. That we all worship God from a limited vantage point. You see, Job finally realizes this truth in chapter 42, verse 1. This time when Job answers God, he gets it right. He says, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you will answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Obviously Job had a change of attitude. Job never did learn why, but he learned something much more valuable. He learned who, and when you know who, you don't really need to know why. 
There are people I know whose chief ambition in getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. Oh, and I'm sure they'll get their answers. But I am just as certain that in heaven, their answers won't be nearly as important as they thought. For when we see the beauties and the glories of our Lord Jesus, all of the perplexities, all of the questions will be overshadowed. In the end, the who will swallow up all of the whys. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George VI of England, he made a statement to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. I said to the man at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. But he said to me, Go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and even safer than the known. Imagine that. The hand of God. Better than the light. Even safer than the known. Some of us are facing uncertain futures, and we've been questioning God. Don't you think a better approach is to grip his hand just a little tighter? Once it was an old man. He was walking with his grandson down the road. When he asked the boy, he said, son, do you know where you are? No, grandpa, I don't. He said, son, how far are you from home? He said, I'm not, no, granddaddy, I'm not sure. He said, well, son, it sounds like to me you're lost. That's when the little boy grinned and he said, nope, Grandpa, I can't be lost. Grandpa asked him, he said, well, why are you so sure? And that's when the little guy replied, I can't be lost, Grandpa, because I'm with you. And that's what God wants us to learn. That even when we don't understand, even with no explanation, we are never lost when we're with God. He can be trusted. So, how do you cope with the poison ivy in your life? Here's what Job would tell us. God is sovereign. He is a big God. He takes orders from no one. He does as he pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation. That's why we need to turn off our complaints and our doubts and our questions, and we need to turn on our praise. God is worthy to be worshipped. Love God. Don't fight Him. Trust God. Stop questioning Him. Real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. Always remember, what's over my head is still under God's feet. Can you say it with me? What's over my head is still under God's feet. That's pretty weak. You want another try? (laughs) Ready? Three, two, one. What's over my head is still under God's feet. God loves you so much. He really does. He is so proud of you that he has staked his honor on your reactions. Imagine this. God believes that your response to difficulty is going to bring him glory. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for this timeless story, how relevant it is to our hearts and our lives today. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to work in our lives. We love you, Lord. We trust you. We want to grow in our faith. 
Lord, we want to lay aside the kindergarten faith. And we want to grow, Lord. We want a strong faith. A faith that stands the test. A faith that survives even in the dark places. We want real faith, Lord. We pray that you'll work in our hearts today. We love you and we thank you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So all stand together. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.